Good morning, and uh, again, welcome to Creekside Church. And I, I've seen some visitors this morning, and we're so glad to have you with us and some uh, longtime friends back with us this morning. Good to see you as well. And uh, if you're new here uh, and looking for the, the pastor of the church, as you might when you come to a church, uh, we, we have like seven of them. Uh, we call them elders here. We, we team lead the church. We also have a, a preaching team, and, and so we, we also share the pulpit as well. As God has gifted us with uh, several men who can uh, lead and preach the word, and we're so blessed by that. Uh, we've been going through the past couple months here in the book of Ephesians. We are, have entitled our series Identity in Christ, as you can kind of see our logo back there with a, a dog tag on a military camo background there, because our, our identity as believers in Jesus Christ is found in Jesus Christ alone. He is the reason... Uh, we, we are who we are, that we have hope in this life and that we have hope in the next life. And if you look at the first three chapters of uh, Ephesians, it's, it's sort of like if you're going on a trip, it, it's the vehicle, it's, it's our identity to get where we're going. And then, and then we have in chapters four through six, the roadmap, uh, you know, how to live this Christian life, how to walk in the light. But there's one key concept we're going to see here in chapter five today that's the fuel for the journey. And I'd like to open up in the chapter 5 here, and we're going to come to the subject of husband's roles and wife's roles in a marriage. Um, and I think it would be great if we had a few weeks to go through each of these different very practical relational sections here in Ephesians 5 and 6. There's a section on marriage. Uh, there's a section on children and parenting. There's a section on work. And, um, but before we get into that, I want to back up a few verses to what I really see as the key verse to this whole section, the key to making all of these relationships work as God intended them. And so let's look in verses, verse 18, Ephesians 5:18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And I want to submit to you that the key to making our marriages work the key to successful parenting, the key to making a difference in the workplace is what it says right here. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, brief, brief theology lesson, first of all. When you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you first trust in Him and ask Him and to forgive you of your sins, uh, you trust in His work, His death and resurrection for your salvation, that He took on the punishment for your sins for you, at that moment you became part of the family of God. And when you became part of the family of God, the very presence of God came to dwell within you, the Holy Spirit. And that's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Also in the Bible, it talks about us being baptized into the body of Christ. Same thing. That's a one-time thing that happens when you first come to Christ. But then God is still doing a work in our lives until one day when we're with him. And that's that process of sanctification, that process where he's making us more and more like Jesus Christ day by day as he renews us in the inside. And to help us on that journey while we're still here and not there, he gives us the Holy Spirit and, and he tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, you look in Colossians chapter 3 and there's a parallel section to what we have here in Ephesians 5. In fact, if you compare Ephesians 5 in the beginning part of chapter 6 to Colossians 3, you'll see it's almost identical parallels. And in, in Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see how many things are parallel there? The, the being filled, the singing, the giving thanks. And when you compare the two passages, you'll see so many remarkable similarities. And when you correlate the two, you see clearly that what produces the result in Colossians is letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And that is the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that the more we read, the more we meditate on and memorize the word of God, the more we let it fill our minds and hearts and our lives, the more we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't a one-time thing that happens one time and you're good for life. Uh, if you were filled with the Holy Spirit yesterday, it's not enough for today or enough for tomorrow. This is a command that we're commanded by God to do repeatedly, regularly. And, and if you look at the original language, it says it's kind of like be being continually filled by the Holy Spirit. And so we're, we're commanded to do this. God rarely makes suggestions. He commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and we can ask, what, well, what does that look like? Uh, you know, in some churches, it might give you the impression that it's, it's speaking in, in tongues or falling down backwards in some kind of ecstatic worship ceremony. Uh, but it's not like that. In Ephesians here, it says the result of being filled with the Spirit is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another in the fear of God. And you know, when your mind and heart is filled with the truths of the Bible, when you're pursuing a righteous life, when, you're, when you have a song on your heart, when you have a spirit of thankfulness, when you have a humble, submissive spirit towards others in this body of believers, your relationships will go better because you have the filling of the Spirit. You're, it's really the key. And, you know, when I'm thinking of marriages, you know, it's hard to have a fight with your spouse if, if one of them is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of hard to pick a fight. You might actually annoy your spouse. You can't be uh, fought with. Um, you can't be argued with about something. And, and in parenting, it's hard to be an angry, unloving parent when you're filled with the Spirit. You know, Christian uh, father's authority over his children, according to Ephesians 6, doesn't allow for a level of harshness that might drive them to anger and resentment. And the way we're told to raise our children is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're, we're in a sense, as parents, God's representatives to the children. There's a sense in which we're God to them. And what I mean by that is that we're God's representatives to teach them and raise them up in his ways to know him. You know, we, we can... Uh, we can discipline them, give them consequences, spank them, all necessary at different times, but we want more than just behavior modification in our children. The best thing that we can give our children is the gift of knowing the Lord, bringing them, leading them, teaching them, and bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved. And you know what? Parenting often feels like an overwhelming task, but it can be done well with the filling of the Holy Spirit by the power of God. And in our workplace, certainly someone who is filled with the Spirit approaches their work differently. To paraphrase what it says in chapter 6, a follower of Christ who is filled with the Spirit will do their work for their employer with a sense of deep respect for their authority and serve them sincerely as they would serving Christ. They try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching them. They do their work with enthusiasm as though they were working for the Lord rather than for people. And they remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good they do. Now, really, to serve one's employer well is to serve Christ well. 
know, we don't need to compartmentalize our lives. So here's work, and then here's my Christian life and everything else in life. Because we are Christians, because we are believers, because the Holy Spirit of God is within us, that changes all our relationships. And when we go to work, there's, there's a difference because God is in us. More we could say on that, more we should say on that about parenting and work, but I really want to focus this morning and the rest of our time on the roles of husbands and wives. The men's study at Creekside has been going through a series called Winning at Home and Work, and it's been good. I've enjoyed that. Um, good insights. And listen, this is where the rubber meets the road for Christian living. Our homes, our families make up the church. And since the church in large part is made up, made up of families, what goes on in the home matters a great deal to God. And God has a great deal to say about the home. And you know, I, as I was thinking about this whole book of Ephesians here, I, I could have had a week where I could preach with some safety on a subject like predestination or redemption or grace versus works or the new life. I mean, no problem, because I can study those things and learn them and preach them. But when I come to the subject of marriage, parenting, and work, that's my personal life. That's how I spend my days. That's where the people closest to me see me and my best and worst throughout the week. I feel a little vulnerable in that subject. <laughs> Bob Cosbo, he's the pastor at Marshalltown Evangelical Free Church in Marshalltown, married Jessalyn and I on July 29, 2000, almost 14 years ago. You know, weddings are times of great happiness and, and an encouraging message. But if you know Bob, he preaches the truth in season and out of season doesn't matter what the occasion. And at our wedding, I remember in his sermon saying that in his marriage there will be trials. And in a marriage, two sinful people are pressed together like they've never been pressed before, and there will be trouble. And he likened that word trouble and trials to the same word used in Matthew 24 of the Great Tribulation. Wow, how do you like that on a marriage day? <laughs> but you know, he spoke the truth. Uh, when you put two sinful people together in a committed, long-term, hopefully lifelong, marriage relationship, there will be trials. Sobering truth for a wedding day, huh? You know, he said that for every two couples, he, for every two couples he stands up to marry, he's a little bit, little, with a little bit of fear and trembling because he realizes that for every two he marries, statistically, one won't make it. Think someone in the audience needed to hear that besides us? <laughs> you bet. Well, the divorce rate is still high, and I just want to share some statistics from the U.S. Census Bureau and Barna Research Group from a couple years ago some divorce facts, and most people already know that around 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce, and it's similarly high in many other developed nations as well. So when you break that down, 41% of first marriages end in divorce, 60% of second marriages end in divorce, 73% of third marriages end in divorce. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. People wait an average of three years after a divorce to remarry, if they remarry at all. The average age for couples going through their first divorce is 30 years old. The divorce rate among couples with children is 40% lower than couples without children. Interesting. 43% of children growing up in America today are being raised without their fathers, and 75% of children with divorced parents live with their mother. Half of all American children will witness the breakup of a parent's marriage. Of these children, close to half will also see the breakup of a parent's second marriage. If your parents are happily married, your risk of divorce decreases by 14%. People who wait to marry until they are over the age of 25 are 24% less likely to get divorced. And that's why you see kind of statistics in the last 10 years, divorce trending out a little bit. People are waiting longer to get married. 
on an average of five years. Living together prior to getting married can increase the chance of getting divorced by as much as 40%. If you've attended college, your risk of divorce decreases by 13%. So what does all of that mean? Should we just encourage people to go to college, not live together before they get married, wait until 25, have children? Is that the solution? Well, some of that might help. But I think we need to take a look at what the Bible says to get some real marriage advice. And, and I think, again, if, if we look at this through the lens of being a spirit-filled believer, it will make a big difference in our relationships. So let's look at Ephesians 5, to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, lead each one of you, let each one of you in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, some of this sounds a bit strange in our culture today. <laughs> Might even seem a little bit strange in the church, probably due to a lack of good teaching on the subject often enough. I suppose if I were to go back to uh, my, my college where I finished my bachelor's at Drake University and were to proclaim to young singles that when you get married, woman, God wants you to submit to your husbands and everything and show respect to them. And uh, you young men, when you get married, God wants you to love your wives totally selflessly, caring for her, cherishing her, taking care of her needs. What kind of response do you think I'd get? <laughs> Probably the same you get about anywhere the, these days. If, if I were to go back to Emmaus Bible College, I, I, I suppose I'd hear a, sh a few shouts of amen, but uh, not, not too much anywhere else these days. Um, you know, I was looking at some marriage statistics websites to get those divorce statistics and some similar blogs. And when you read some of the comments out there that people are saying about marriage, what they think about what religion teaches about marriage, they think it's dumb. Uh, so many comments, several people comment, it's not worth it. That those who are divorced say they're so glad to be free from it. Nancy Pelosi, minority leader in the U.S. House of Representatives, recently said that she doesn't know why anyone gets married. How far we've come from God's original design for marriage. <laughs> well, now God didn't attend, intend for all the conflict in marriage. And we need to go back and look at Adam and Eve, the first two people on the planet, to see what happened. They, they had a perfect relationship. You remember in Genesis 2, when God brought all the animals to Adam for him to give them names and also to show, them, show him that he wasn't complete yet. And then God put Adam into a deep sleep. He took one of his ribs and he made a comparable helper for him. And when God brought Eve to Adam and performed that first marriage ceremony, that would have been wonderful to see, Adam proclaimed at last, This one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. 
This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. You know, you just sense the delight of his heart in his new companion. And on that day, they became, in God's eyes, one flesh. That means that the marital union that he made was to be permanent in God's eyes. Permanent monogamy was and continues to be God's design for marriage. And, and then, sadly, when you look in the next chapter, in chapter 3 of Genesis, you see Eve deceived by Satan, the serpent, about eating fruit from the forbidden tree. And she gave some to Adam, who was with her. And, and he chose to eat. The Bible says he wasn't deceived like her, but he sadly, tragically, chose to eat the fruit as well and bring sin into the world. And on that day, mankind and the whole world was thrown into chaos for the first time. And you see Adam and Eve hiding in shame from God, and then when God confronts Adam, you see Adam blaming Eve, not wanting to confess the own, his own sin. You see Eve blaming the serpent for her disobedience, and then ever since then, relationships have never been the same, have they? You know, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, your spouse is someone you came together with out of love, in love, and then you have to face all kinds of relationship issues throughout your life. You know, a former elder here, uh, now with the Lord, Ray Johnson, a man I greatly respect, uh, is said to have never had a fight with his wife. And many people have testified to that, and even at his funeral we heard that. And I admire Ray for his love for God, his gentle spirit, his uh, pursuit of truth until his last days, much like Lou Clarkson. Um, and he was a great Calvinist thinker, so he had that going for him. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure his godly life and his godly marriage was only possible because he was a spirit-filled man. And what an example he was. Uh, now, I want to compare Genesis 3 here to Genesis 4 because God goes on to bring the curse of sin, the consequences of sin into the world. And uh, originally, Adam's role as the leader and Eve's role as his helper was easy. It was natural. It was how God intended it, and it worked. But as sin entered, it changed things. And part of the curse for sin, for woman, is increased pain in giving birth. And then the other part of it in Genesis 3.16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And what does that mean, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you? Well, it certainly wouldn't mean that it's wrong for a woman to physically desire her husband or emotionally desire her husband. What could it mean that your desire will be for him? And, and in, you look over in Genesis 4.7, you see Adam and Eve's son Cain has killed his brother Abel, the first murder recorded in the Bible. And God is confronting him, and God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. It's, the, it's interesting. It's, it's the same word, it's the same construct in both passages. Because of Sin's desire was to rule over Cain, but Cain should rule over it, God said. And, and because of sin and the curse, men and women would now face struggles in their relationship. God divinely designed the husband to lead in the relationship and for the wife to be his helper, but now there would be conflict. The woman's desire would be to show more self-will and not as willingly submit to her husband and her, his leadership. And now the husband would now have a tendency to dominate and rule over his wife, not in a loving way. And ever since then, men and women have struggled in relationships. But now there's hope. And I'm excited to preach this passage because there's hope for us today. And we look in Ephesians 5 here, and we look at the role of the wife, and we're told her role is submission and respect. Look in verses 22 to 24. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then down in verse 33 in the recap verse, it says, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Unfortunately, the feminist movement has made this kind of ideal out to be a terrible thing in the past half century. Um, But it doesn't have to sound weird or bad or demeaning or degrading in any sort of way. If it is God's plan, and it is according to the Bible, then he knows what he is doing. And his way and his will is best for our relationships. You know, also, I, I understand, it's understandable today that women have fears about submitting to their husband when they see the way women have been treated historically, the, you know, the overbearing domination in, in, in cultures and um, demeaning attitude towards them. And that, that certainly was the case in the culture of Ephesus uh, where the Ephesians lived, and that, that's a history lesson for another time. But I just want to give a few points, a few clarifying points about what submission means. According to the verses here, um, it doesn't mean that women are lesser beings than men. Certainly not. The role distinction is just that, a role distinction. Um, you see in, in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, nor, nor male nor female, uh, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So on a spiritual level, uh, on an ontological level, we are equals before God. Yet there's a distinction in roles, and you see that in 1 Corinthians 11.3. The Bible emphasizes this concept of equal yet different here, even in the Godhead. It says in 11.3, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So you, you know God the Father and Jesus, God the Son, Jesus Christ, are equal in the Godhead, and yet there's a distinction in roles. And uh, so too men and women are equals before God, and yet there's a role distinction. The head of woman is man. And, and we have to look to Jesus Christ, who's our perfect example of submission and, and coming to the earth. He, he came willingly and submissively to the Father's will for him to come and die as a sacrifice for our sins. And even in the garden, the night before he was crucified, he said, he asked the Lord if this cup could pass from him, this cup of suffering and grief that he was about to bear. And, and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see the great example of submission in our Lord and Savior. Uh, secondly, I want to point out that submission is only for the Christian wife to her husband. Not to any man, but to her husband, as it says here. Whether Christian or not. Uh, you might ask, well, you don't know my husband. Well, uh, maybe especially in those cases this is to be practiced. Because um, we see here in 1 Corinthians seven, thirteen to 14, that and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So, so you see there a situation where a Christian woman is married to an unbeliever, and if he is willing to stay with her, she should not divorce him. And the reason is that God will use her influence in a sanctifying way in her husband's life and on her children's lives. Her influence on him might even lead him to God, to salvation. In 1 Peter 3, 1 says, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And, and here, too, we see a, a godly woman exhorted to be submissive to, to her husband, even, even to the ones that don't obey the word. In those cases, 
her, her loving, gracious, submissive spirit to him is, is probably the strongest evangelistic, evangelistic tool she has. When she's filled with the spirit and she lives a life, as it goes on to describe in the rest of the chapter, 1 Peter 3, of modesty and meekness and respect for her husband, she might win him to the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Thirdly, I want to say that her submission is to be in everything. Verse 24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So not just when you feel like it, not when you feel like he's treating you right, in everything. And it says, just as the church is to be subject to Christ. Now, this is absolutely not an excuse for uh, a man to mistreat his wife. And, and certainly there are civil laws that, you know, uh, govern that sort of thing. We certainly don't approve of it here. But I just want to say that this role of submission and respect shouldn't be a hard thing. It should be easy if you are walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. It changes all of our relationships. And even in the most difficult of circumstances where there doesn't seem to be much hope, a godly woman can make a big difference in the marriage by the power of God. And we have many, many godly women in this church. And, you know, if you need someone to offer you encouragement and support and advice for your particular situation, uh, we can point you to some excellent women of faith here who can help you. And we'd love to help you do that. Now on to the role of the husband. Uh, now your turn, guys. <laughs> Love your wives. Let's look in verses 25 to 31. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a parallel verse in that Colossians 3 passage that says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter to them. Another translation of that in the New Living Translation says, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. So we've established what the Bible says about the husband's authority and the wife's role of submission and respect. But we need to read the other half of that, what the Bible has to say about the husband's role. And we must never forget, men, that it is our responsibility, our role, to love our wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So we have to ask the question, how did Christ love his church? What does that look like? And, I, and if you look at these verses here, it kind of naturally categorizes into four areas. First of all, it's a sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This love is a sacrificial love. Jesus Christ humbly gave his life as a great sacrifice for unworthy sinners. It was undeserved. And he gave it generously and graciously and sacrificially. And the husband is to love his wife with that same kind of selfless, sacrificial love too. Christ gave everything he had. He gave his own life for the church. And that is the standard for a husband's love for his wife. Impossible, isn't it? On our own, but not with the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can, we can better do that. We can't do it on our own in our sinful nature. And, and 
but with the power of God in our lives, I believe we can love our wives more like this. And, you know, as I, as I was studying through this and practicing it, I'm thinking, Lord, you're, you're preaching to me here too. I need this. <laughs> um, I, don't have my, I don't have a perfect marriage or, or parenting. I, I've been married about 14 years. Many of you have been married much longer, but I don't stand before you based on my experience. I'm not a Dennis Rainey or a Gary Rosberg or any other professional marriage counselor or speaker, but I stand before you this morning in the power of the Word of God. And my role here this morning is just to call us to the Word of God and be encouraged by what He says. And, you know, I, I have a friend, a longtime friend, who uh, um, some of you know, Alan Birdwell, from many years ago. Um, I asked him one time and how he was able to get through a difficult marriage situation a long time ago, and, and he said three words to me. He said, die to self. Die to self. He didn't offer me any other advice. He just said, die to self. You know, I, I need to work on putting that more into practice. Uh, I need God's help to do that. Man, we all need God's help to put that into practice. Die to self. Loving our wives as Christ loved the church sacrificially. A purifying love. Secondly, we see in verses 26 to 27 how Jesus Christ, he loves his church and he's purifying his church. And he says, it says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And husbands, if we are seeking to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we will make it our goal to lead our wives to godliness, just as Christ does for his church. So you don't read the Bible and pray with your wife or discuss spiritual matters and you think it might be awkward to start doing that? Well, when, if ever, are you going to start? I mean, just imagine... The years going by, decade after decade, and you never took the time to cultivate a spiritual relationship with your wife. That would be a tragic thing. If we want to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we must be concerned about our spiritual well-being because Christ is purifying this church. He is changing us and molding us more into the likeness of Christ, and he wants us to be holy. And one day he's coming back, and he's this, this bride, the church, is going to be presented to the bridegroom, Christ, as a glorious, glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And what a wonderful day that's going to be. And, and husbands, that's our example for the way we should love our wives, to lead her into godliness. And a husband should never lead his wife into any kind of sin, but to godliness. Thirdly, it's a caring love. Look in verses 28 to 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. It's a very simple concept. You know, we take care of our bodies. If we're sick, we give it rest and medicine. If it's hungry, we give it food. We clothe, we clean, we exercise, we take care of ourselves. And we're called to love and treat our wives in a warm and caring and affectionate and nourishing way with the same attention and and preoccupation we give our own bodies. 1 Peter 3, 7 also says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, a Christian husband should honor his wife by being sensitive to her needs and feelings, and we need to treat our wives with understanding as we live together. And God... It says here, also gives a blessing in our prayers if we do this. They won't be hindered. Living with our wives in an understanding way. And 
Our ultimate example, again, is the Lord Jesus himself who cares for and nourishes the church. When a husband shows deep care for his wife, he is loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Fourthly, it's an unbreakable love. It's a, it's a permanent love. Look in verses 30 to 31. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A husband should love his wife in a caring way because she has one flesh with him. When a man and woman come together in marriage and the sexual union, just as the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, did, God no longer sees them as separate individuals, but as one flesh. And because they're one flesh in God's eyes, no one should try and separate what God has put together, what he has declared as one. You know, marriage between one man and one woman was to be permanent. Jesus quoted the same one flesh verse from Genesis in Matthew 19, and then he added his commentary to it. This is God's perspective on the permanence of marriage. Jesus says, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Words from the lips of Jesus himself. In our Malachi series not too long ago, my brother Alan spoke from chapter 2 about marriage. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a very bold statement in there that God makes about marriage. Here's his perspective. New Living Translation. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? And body and spirit you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Pretty clearly stated from the lips of God Almighty. Listen, I know some here have been through that, through divorce. And, um, you know, the Bible makes concession in cases of adultery or the abandonment of an unbeliever. And, And God is certainly a gracious and forgiving God in other circumstances as well. It's never a matter of forgiveness. God is a very gracious and merciful and forgiving God. But I want us to feel the weight of what he says in his word about his intention and design for the permanence of marriage. I hate divorce. Amen? I mean, anyone who's been through divorce can probably say, amen, I I hate divorce. How it's wrecking lives. And you know, God tells us this because he loves us and he wants the best for us. As he designed it for Adam and Eve. It's not like he says, I hate divorce because he hates people who get a divorce. It's because he loves us so much that he gives us these commands because he knows what's best for our lives. Listen, let's be clear here. The Bible also is very clear that any extramarital sexual intimacy is seen by God as a one flesh union with the other person. And that's why it's such a serious matter. My, My Jewish pharmacist, who I've gotten to know well this past year through my son Benjamin's medicines he needs. We've had some great conversations and and he told me that to the Jew, sex is marriage and that our our sex culture is such a huge problem. And he openly says this in front of his coworkers. That's kind of entertaining. And uh, amen to that. You know, uh, Paul talks about our bodies being sacred temples of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. So they should never be defiled by any illicit intimacy with anyone other than our spouses. It's a one flesh union. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church by your permanent, unbreakable love for her. And just as I offered for the woman, we have many, many, many godly men in this church. And guys, if you need some encouragement and support, and prayer or advice for your situation, let us know. We would love to encourage and help and support you in whatever you're dealing with. Now let's wrap up now with these last few verses in chapter 5. This one flesh concept in, in verse 31. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now this is a high calling, men and women. Our marriages are to be a reflection of the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. And I want to reiterate that fulfilling these God-given roles in marriage is only possible, only possible if we are walking in the Spirit, if we are seeking to be filled in the, by the Spirit, because it changes all our relationships, because it is the power of God within us to help us fulfill these God-given roles. And, the, and maybe you feel like I do at times. I mean, I, f I feel like a failure in doing my role well consistently, but let's take heart. Let's commit or recommit this morning to these roles God has given us and look to God, the Holy Spirit, to fill us, to empower us to do what we can't do on our own. Uh, now I want to I lead us into a time of communion here with a couple more thoughts on verse 32 here. Great place to wrap up this morning. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul writes that this one flesh truth in marriage is also a great mystery. It's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. And as such, she's, she's intimately and separately connected to her Savior. The Old Testament saints didn't see this coming. It was a mystery to them. But to us on this side of the cross, we see a magnificent picture in the marriage relationship of husband and wife to the relationship of the bridegroom to his bride, Christ and the church. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that he chose his bride and that he came and made a great sacrifice to redeem and to purchase his bride, his very own life. That's amazing love, isn't it? I mean, it's the ultimate act of love. He gave himself for her. And um, he, he's, he's both the perfect example of loving and submitting. Jesus willingly submitting to the Father's will to come and be that great sacrifice and in so doing, he demonstrated the greatest act of love ever, the greatest act of sacrifice and love ever. And when we as believers and followers and disciples of Jesus Christ come this morning and take the bread and the cup and the next couple songs here, we're doing so remembering what a great price that was paid to buy us for himself, that he bought us out of the slave market of sin, that he purchased us for himself, so that one day when he comes again, he's going to present this body of believers known as the church around the world to himself as a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and, and without blemish. He washes us clean. He makes us holy and clean through the sacrifice, through his blood, through the, his, his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And one day, the bridegroom is coming again to claim his bride. And we see in Revelation 19 a, a great scene of this great wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church is together with 
the bridegroom in heaven, and there's great celebration. And you know, I just have to ask, are you part of the bride? Are you part of the church? And what I mean by that is, have you ever personally put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? That is the only way to heaven. That is the only way to be part of his bride. He's coming, and he's coming soon. And if you've put off making a decision, they say 90% of people make a decision for Christ by the time they're 16. So, you know, uh, when you're older than that, it doesn't happen as often. We don't like to change our mind. We don't like to admit the pride in our hearts and lives that has been led us differently. We don't like to change our mind about things. We don't like to make a new decision and change our ways. But you know what? If there was ever a time to do so, it's today. Because the bridegroom is coming, and he's coming soon to claim his bride. He paid a great price for her. And you know what? When you put your faith and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, that price has been paid for you. You no longer face the judgment and wrath of God. You no longer have the fear of death and hell. But you have the hope and joy from his very presence within you and the forgiveness and total cleansing that he gives us. And one day he's going to perfect that in our lives and present to himself a glorious church. And what amazing love. And as we enter into communion now, may our hearts be full of joy and thankfulness as we take the bread and the, and the cup and thankfulness. And, and our hearts just saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Thank you for the greatest act of love ever. Thank you that you came and shed your own lifeblood for me to pay my price. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning and our visitors, and I just pray that in some small way, at least, that their hearts have been challenged by your word. And Lord, may you do your perfect work in each heart and life here this morning and whatever situation a person is in here this morning, your word is powerful and living and active and, and can reach down into the heart and soul and change from the inside out. And Lord, maybe, maybe there's some conviction here this morning. I know I'm feeling it in my role as a husband. Lord, just, I pray that we would take heart and take encouragement from this passage and that we would seek to be filled by the Spirit. Lord, may we immerse ourselves and, and read your word every day and seek to understand its truth because that truth can change us and empower us to live in a way that pleases you. And now as we take the bread and cup, Lord, it's just with hearts full of thanksgiving, full of joy and singing in our hearts, making melody to the Lord because of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name. us. We need your help, your strength, your power, your filling to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. And Lord, let us go out from this place in the strength and power and might of your spirit and seek to live a life pleasing to you and the way you've asked us. Lord, thank you for Nick and the band and this song of worship. And we just commit it to you and our lives to you in Jesus' name.